You know, last week Mitchell covered a lot of territory. He took a 36,000 foot view of what happened after the fall, after Adam and Eve decided to do the unthinkable, that is, rebel against God and really become their own gods. And he covered a lot of territory, and we're going to slow the narrative down this week. But before we begin, I want to read a passage to you that kind of helps us understand where we're going to be going. It's found in Psalm 8, and it's written by King David. Listen to what he says. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You can see already he's, he's talking about creation. He's um, really just accentuating the power of God and the creative essence of God, that He created all things. And then he begins talking about man. Listen to what he says about man. Yet you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know what's interesting about that psalm is it's written, obviously, after the fall. After everything that we covered last week, all those things that happened, Cain killing Abel, uh, the Tower of Babel, uh, everything that happened, including the flood, is in the past. And yet here is King David saying, God, you're still majestic. You're still in power. You still created all things. And you have placed man in authority over those things. That's an important point for us to understand because while a lot has changed since the fall, some things remain the same. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The flood brought about incredible devastation, as we saw in last week's lesson. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm, swarm on the earth and all mankind. God destroyed it at all. The only ones He preserved were Noah, his three sons, and their immediate family members. And then two of every kind of animal that God commanded Noah to bring on the ark with him. So everything else is destroyed. It's devastating. It's, it's worldwide. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. God amazingly destroyed all that He had deemed good. You remember in chapters 1 and 2, every time he made something, he said, and it is good, and it is good. And then when he made man, he said, it is very good. And now he's destroyed it all, keeping just a remnant, a portion, alive. And that's how we kind of ended it last week. But post-flood, what happens? It says that God blessed Noah. Here's this one man, and God blesses him and his sons, and then he tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Mitchell talked about this in last week's lesson. God is continuing the mandate. That's one of the things that has not changed. A lot has changed, right? A lot of people have died. Animals have died. Um, all kinds of crops have died. Trees have been destroyed. Everything has changed, but this remains the same. Be fruitful, multiply. He says it again, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly 
on the earth and multiply in it. Now that's really important because the scene is much the same as it was when Adam and Eve were created. They were the only two human beings and God said, I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. Here's Noah, his three sons and their immediate families and he's saying, do the same thing. We're starting all over again. See, this, this mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve stands the same. Be fruitful and multiply. In other words, spread my image, the image of God all over the earth. We're starting over again. I've destroyed everything. Now you're going to, in a, in a sense, recreate everything. You're to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, extend my divine presence. Everywhere you go, you're to, to reflect me because you're still my creation. You're, you're a, a man. There's women. You're going to go and procreate, fill the earth, and extend my divine presence because you're made in my image. And then finally, you're to have dominion. You're to have dominion, just like Adam and Eve were. Everything will be in subjection to you. You're to rule over my creation as my proxies, my vice regents. There's, there's still that royal decree that's going out to Noah and his three sons and their descendants, that they're to carry on what Adam and Eve were to do, but had failed to do. And here's what God says to Noah. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they're delivered. Now, you can probably already sense that there's a little bit different thing going on here. This is similar, but yet different to what God said to Adam and Eve. Here he says, the fear of you and the dread of you is going to be upon what? Every beast of every kind. They're going to fear you. There's now animosity, where once there was peace between man and the animals, now there's fear and dread. Things have changed. He even gives them permission to now eat animals, which was not the case pre-flood. So things have begun to change. He says, these animals, these creatures are delivered to you. See, Noah had the same mandate as Adam had, but he's doing it in a new creation. Everything's starting all over. All those Animals, those pairs of animals that came off the ark were going to have to do the same thing, procreate, make more of their kind. Adam and, I mean, Noah and his family were going to have to do the same thing as well. We're starting all over again. And he, like Adam, was to be God's vice regent, his, his emissary, his dignitary with designated power to serve on God's behalf. Don't forget that as we move through this. That is one of the things that remains unchanged. He's to spread the image of God. He's to extend the divine presence of God. And he's to rule over God's creation as God's proxy, as God's vice regent. And so were his sons. See, this is a fresh start for humanity. God graciously spared some so that he could bless them and so that they could do the job that God had originally given Adam and Eve. They had failed, brought sin into the world, and then here's Noah with a chance to correct things. So it says that Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Now this is an innocuous verse, right? You read it and you go, okay, great. He you know, plants a vineyard. He decides to be a farmer. He decides to settle down and become a farmer. But in this little verse, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 20, there is all kinds of problems that we miss if we don't look carefully. And if we don't consider carefully everything that God has told no one has sons to do. It says he planted a vineyard. He was a man of the soil. That word is Adama. And you can see that it's very similar to Adam, Adam. 
He, he becomes a man of the soil, of the earth, the land, the ground. He basically decides that this is going to be my future. This is what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I'm going to settle down and I'm going to plant a vineyard. But is that what God told him to do? What was the mandate? I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. And I want you to oversee, have dominion over all my creation. But this guy's decided to do something different. He's decided to settle down. See, it's interesting, those two words, Adama for ground, and then Adam for man, are, are closely linked for a reason. We go all the way back to chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man, Adam, of dust from the ground, Adama, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. He took what was once inanimate, lifeless, and he created out of it the ground, Adama, he created Adam, Adam, man, and then breathed life into him. He took basically dirt and made a human. It's amazing. But what has Noah decided to do? He's decided to go back to the ground, so to speak. He, he's going in reverse. He's a, he's a man of the ground and he's planted a vineyard. Now again, that seems very innocent. It, it, there's no sin inherent in that statement, but it reeks of rebellion because it's not what God called him to do. And that's amazing when you consider what we know about Noah from the rest of the story. We know early on that it was declared of him that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God looked down and he saw one man who he could say, I find favor in you. Not only that, we're told in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, that Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. He walked with God. That's almost a description of Adam pre-fall, right? Adam was made righteous. Adam was blameless up until the fall. Adam walked with God. He and Eve walked through the garden with God. They talked with God. And Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they're going to be very important as we move into the rest of the story. So he starts out really well, but then he does something. He started out doing all that God commanded him to do. And that is really talking about that when God said build an ark, he built it. He had no idea what a boat was, let alone an ark. He'd never seen a boat. Because at this point, since the flood, or, or before the flood, there really are are no people building boats, nobody's sailing. And there's another important factor we need to understand. There's probably never been rain before. And yet when God says, I want you to build this thing, He goes and He does it. He does all that God tells Him to do. When God says, go and collect two of every kind of creature, He does it. And probably with the help of His three sons. So He's faithful. So He's obedient. He, he finds favor with God. But that one little statement that he planted a vineyard tells us that at the end of the day, he wanted his will to be done. God had told him clearly what to do. Multiply, spread over the earth, fill it, subdue it. And yet he decides, I want to do my will. What had been the problem with Adam and Eve? They wanted to do their will. See, Noah makes an autonomous decision. He becomes self-ruling. I know what God said, but instead I'm going to become a man of the soil and I'm going to plant a vineyard, and he settles down. That's really what is so obvious in this statement is that he, rather than go across the face of the earth, decides to settle down, much like the people of Babel did. They don't want to spread out. They decided, we're going to build a city, we're going to build a tower into the heavens, and we're going to make a name for ourselves. 
in direct disobedience to what God said. And so here you have Noah and his sons doing the very same thing. See, Adam and Eve decided that they wanted autonomy too. When the serpent came to them and said, you're not going to die if you eat of this fruit. You'll, you'll become like God. You'll actually live and become as God. You will know good from evil, right from wrong. You will become autonomous, self-ruling, self-determining. You'll get to decide what's best for you and not have to rest on God's word anymore. They did the same thing. Cain decided to kill his own brother. Why? Because he played God. He wanted to make the decision whose life is more valuable. He did it out of jealousy and he did it out of spite, but he was playing God. And then all their descendants, we know from what we covered last week, decided that wickedness was better than righteousness. So we've had the flood. We have Noah given the same mandate. And he's decided to basically be self-autonomous again. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to settle down. I'm going to plant a vineyard. So he starts out well, but he doesn't end up well. It goes on and says, Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted that vineyard and he drank of the wine. So at least one season goes by and he became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. Now we read that verse and we don't really have any issues here. We're like, okay, he got drunk. Well, maybe that's not so good, but it's not necessarily a sin. And then he uncovered himself. Maybe he was hot. We, but in this couple of verses, we have yet again a spiraling down, a description of mankind, even post-flood, that's not flattering. It, it's not meant to be flattering. See, he became intoxicated. He became drunk and he left himself exposed basically naked in his tent. Now, once again, we can, we can excuse him and say, well, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's not necessarily a sin. But again, he's not where he's supposed to be, and he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing, and that never leads to good. And it doesn't here because his youngest son, Ham, walks in and sees his father naked. And in that culture, that was a no-no. That was something you didn't do. Now, there are all kinds of uh, speculation that have been... Um, created over the centuries as to what exactly did Ham do. Some, some infer that maybe homosexual, homosexuality was involved. Maybe there's something uh, egregious that went on, but the scriptures don't tell us that. So rather than speculate, all we can know is that after seeing his father in that state, drunken and naked in his tent, he went and told his brothers. And it infers that he gossiped. He, he, he kind of made light of it. Hey, I saw dad and he was naked. He was drunk in his tent and he begins to make fun of his father. He disrespects, dishonors his father. And it takes his brothers to, to brothers to go in with a, basically a blanket and they back into the tent and they cover up their father's nakedness. They do what this young man should have done. And as a result, here's what happens. You see a line of descent rather than ascent, rather than things improving, you see them once again spiraling down. When Noah wakes up, he's not a happy camper. When he finds out what his son did, he curses him. Actually, he curses his grandson. He curses Canaan. And again, we can sit there and say, well, gosh, that's a little bit of an overreaction. But, but I think Noah is probably a little bit chapped at himself that he let this happen. But now he's really upset with his son that he would dishonor him in such a way. And so what does he do? He curses Canaan. He curses his own grandson and all his descendants. So you can see this is an egregious act that's been committed by Ham. 
to bring his father to this point that he would curse his own grandson and all of his descendants. In doing so, he basically divides his family. He sets his family against itself. And you have to remember that we're starting new. Everybody from this point forward is coming from who? Noah and his family. Every person who's going to appear in the rest of the Bible is going to come from this man and his three sons and their family. It's a, it's a start over, but it doesn't start out well. He sets his family against itself. See, we read in chapter 10, verse 6, the sons of Ham, this young man who dishonored his father, are Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And then it goes on and explains, Cush father Dimrod, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. This is the guy that ended up building Babel and that tower that God cursed. From that land he went into Assyria. He also builds Nineveh, which would become the capital of the Babylonian Empire, which will play a major role in the lives of the Israelites centuries from now. Egypt fathered Kelesahim, from whom the Philistines came. So yet another enemy of Israel comes out of this young man Ham and his descendants. So we're, we're now seeing, once again, this split. We had Cain and Abel. Cain and Seth early on, the, the humanity was divided into two camps. Now we have the same thing happening once again. You have the negative side, the kind of the evil side, and then you're going to have the good side, so to speak. We've started all over, but we've gone in the same direction, all because Noah decided he wanted to, to domesticate. He wanted to settle down. He chose domestication over what? Dominion. Go do what I told you to do. Spread over the face of the earth. Make more of, my, of your kind because you're made in my image. And I want you to spread my image. I want you to spread my rule and reign over the face of the earth. But instead, he decides to do things his way. And as a result, you have the rise of the kingdom of men once again. And that's going to become even more clear as we move through this. But overall, God's still in control, right? He, he's still in His throne. He's not up in heaven going, oh my word, how did this happen? He's not happy. He, he's not in approval of what Noah's done, but He's not surprised either. See, God had a plan, and God is working that plan. And nothing Adam and Eve did, nothing Noah has done is a surprise to God because He already has a plan in place that has taken all of this into account. That's the amazing thing about God. And we see out of this, even though there's this line of descent, these men who come from Ham and Canaan and all their descendants, you also see a line of ascent. Because Genesis goes on and tells us about Shem, one of the other sons of Noah. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad. Not sure if that's how you say it, but I don't think you know either, so I'm going with mine. And two, it was two years after the flood, he has a son. And then it goes on and it gives us a genealogy, a very brief gene genealogy, but a very important one. It says that this man fathered Shelah. Shelah fathered Eber, Eber, Peleg, and then Ru, and then Sarag, and then Nahor, and then finally Terah. That name may be familiar to you, but if it's not, it should be because he plays an important role in the future our future, because he is in the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. Because when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram. This, this is a major shifting point in the story. This is where everything begins to change. 
in a major way with the introduction of this name, Abram. There's been 10 generations after Noah, and now God starts, starts over again. He started over with Noah. Now he's going to start over with Abram. And it's important that we understand Abram because if, if you think about it, Noah seemed to be a right kind of guy. He seemed to have everything going for him. As we said, he, was, he found favor with God. He was chosen by God. He, he walked with God. He's described as blameless, not perfect, not sinless, but he had a right relationship with God and things didn't turn out too well. well what about this guy, Abram? This is fascinating to me how God works. Because if you look at a map, you see that this guy didn't come from Israel because Israel didn't exist. He came from a place called Ur, which is in what comes to be known as Mesopotamia. And what's important about that is this region is where the garden was believed to have been, but also it's where Nimrod built Babel. So, so you see this guy that God chooses, this man named Abram, comes from a very unexpected place. It says, this is the account of Terah's family. Terah was the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran was the father of Lot. But Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's, he's way over there to the east in Mesopotamia, the land of his birth, while his father Terah was still living. So Abram is born, and he's born in this very unlikely place. Then we're told that one day Terah took his son Abram, his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and his grandson Lot, his son Haran's child, and moved away from Ur of the Chaldeans. They leave. They, they leave that land, even though that was their home. He was headed for the land of Canaan, but they stopped at Haran and settled there. So for some reason, Terah decides that he's going to move his family up to the north and to the west. Again, not Israel, but he's on his way to Canaan, which will become the land of Israel eventually. And then it says, Terah lived 205 years, and that's important, and died while in Haran. So Abram's father dies while they're living in Haran. And Haran, again, is up in the north, and it's way north of Israel. So he's living up in this land that's once again not part of Israel. It's not even in Canaan. So Abram comes from a weird place. He goes to another strange place, and he's supposedly on his way to Canaan. But unlike Noah, this is really important. This is from J. Dwight Pentecost. He says, Abram had been brought up in a pagan household, in a pagan culture, and was dedicated to the worship of pagan gods. He's a pagan. That's his point. He's, he's a born and bred pagan. He worships false gods. He's not worshiping Yahweh. I don't think he has any relationship whatsoever with Yahweh. He goes on and says, indeed, at the time God appeared to him, Abram lived in spiritual darkness. That's, that's huge. Yet God appeared to Abram not because he was righteous or seeking God, but rather as a revelation of his glory to prepare an instrument through which he would work to establish his kingdom in this earthly sphere. Just, just for a second, compared Noah, blameless, found favor with God, walked with God. And, and now look at this guy. He, he has no relationship with God. He's a pagan living in a pagan land. He's moved to another pagan land, and he's got nothing going for him that we would look at and go, man, I, I can see why you chose him. I can see why God chose Abram. He's the most unlikely candidate you can imagine. And yet, he's going to be given the same mandate that was given to Adam and that was given 
to Noah to basically be king. But, but here's the problem. He's, he's 75 years old when all this is taking place. When he originally gets called by God, he's 75 years old. He's married, but he lives with his parents. Now, any married man that lives with his parents, that's a bad sign. Things are not going really well with your life. This guy's 75 years old, still living with mom and dad. He's wealthy. He's got a barren wife, though, and he has no heirs to all that he owns. So he's got a lot going for him, but nobody to leave it to. So this guy has nothing to offer God. Again, he's the worst candidate you can imagine. You and I would not choose him. We would not even consider him. <coughs> and yet God does. And that's significant because we know also in, as we go into the New Testament that God chose people like you and me. Here he is choosing Abram, somebody who had nothing to offer him. And, and, and I love what Stephen Dempster says about this. He says, what a pathetic sight is this man, trudging the dusty Mesopotamian roads, whose journey has come to a dead, and, a dead end northeast of Canaan. He's, he's way up there in Haran. How could it be possible that one without such promise could hold so much promise? How in the world is God going to use this guy to fix the problem on earth? Didn't work with Noah. Why is this guy the choice? See, I think what this does is point us back to the fact that God is the God of the impossible. God doesn't need us. God isn't dependent upon us. God didn't need Adam. God didn't need Eve. He didn't need Noah. And He didn't need His three sons. And He most certainly doesn't need Abram. But He is going to use Abram, this unlikely candidate, to accomplish His divine will. Because here's what we know. Here's what we know about Him. God is going to really do a royal reboot. His plan remains the same. He's looking for a king. He's looking for someone who will take his rule, his reign, his authority, his designated power and dominion and use it wisely for the benefit of his creation. Again, didn't work with Adam, didn't work with Eve, didn't work with Noah, and now he starts over with Abram. So the Lord said to Abram, that's going to be a recurring theme, and we're going to look at a lot of these passages over the next few minutes because this is so important for us to understand. God is going to reiterate over and over again His promise to this man named Abram. And here's the first one, and it occurs in chapter 12 of Genesis. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. Think about Ham dishonoring his father. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What an incredible statement. What an amazing promise, a covenant that God is making with this man who has nothing to offer God. He brings nothing to the table, and yet God says, In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through you, I'm going to bless the world. And I have to believe that, that even Abram was amazed at this. And, and we're going to see why he's amazed in just a second, because he looks at it and thinks, this is impossible. But it's important to consider that Genesis 1 through 11 that we covered last week, over the last two weeks, covers about a thousand years, give or take. Genesis 12 through 22 covers 25 years. So you can see that God is like just jammed on the brakes and He slowed down the narrative. And he's really concentrating on this one man, Abram. He's going to take 
all these chapters to cover 25 years of this man's life. So something incredible is taking place, something of great significance. The world has been waiting for this moment. And it's not unlike when Jesus showed up on the scene and says, the kingdom of heaven is here. The world had been waiting. The Jews had been waiting for that moment. Well, the world is waiting for this one because things are so screwed up on the earth. Nature, creation is waiting for this moment. It's highly significant. And it goes, goes on and tells us that God's going to reiterate this promise. But St Stephen Dempster says this, Abram is told to leave the world of Babel. Think about that. Where he came from, Ur, is basically the area in which Babel was. So he's leaving Babel, confusion, disobedience, disorder, so that he can have God's piece of geography. Leave that behind. I got something far better. Moreover, he and his barren wife, Sarah, hold the key to the promise as they will be shown that land and what is more, they will become a great nation through which all the families of the Adama, earth, will be blessed. See, Noah was content to just work a little plot of land, Adama, and grow some grapes and make some wine. But God had something far greater plans, something far more significant in store. And here we have a picture of it. All the people, all the families of the earth, the Adama, will be blessed through you, Abram. What an incredible statement. See, all creation's under a curse. Everything has that has not been destroyed by the flood is still under a curse because that curse that's given in chapter 3 of Genesis still, still holds true. And J. Dwight Pentecost says, we see as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, the earth needs redemption. The whole earth needs redemption. Adama needs redemption. The creatures of the earth need redemption. And fallen, sinful Adam, mankind, needs redemption. But here's, here's the problem, and, and, and it should jump out at us. Everybody and everything needs redemption, but man can't do anything about it. Man can't redeem himself. We've seen it over and over again. Man can't fix this problem. Why? How do we know that? Just go back to Genesis 6, 5. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and He saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. That's the whole reason He destroyed the earth, through the flood. And nothing has really changed post-flood, right? Not with Noah. And we're going to see it doesn't change much, much after Abram as well. Genesis 6, 11 and 12. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on earth was corrupt. The earth is corrupt. Everything on the earth is corrupt. And also every human, every Adam on earth is corrupt. See, man can't redeem himself. He can't fix this problem. So what does God do? He picks this man named Abram, who once again brings nothing to the table. He's got nothing going for him. He's got a barren wife. He's got lots of money. He's inherited his nephew Lot, adopted him. But he's, he's not a Yahweh follower at this point. He's going to hear God call, and he's going to follow that call. He's going to be obedient, but he doesn't know much about the one who's called him and who he is following. And then God's going to let him survey the domain that he's being given. He's going to show him the land. He says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north and south and east and west, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And that word's going to become so important. 
I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. In other words, you can't. There's no way to count the dust of the earth. There's going to be no way to count your descendants. There are going to be so many. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. God is going to bless this guy. And he shows him all that he's going to give him. He, he lets him walk through the land. And he says, all of this belongs to you. So he's promising him a land, a geographic area, and a seed, offspring. That, that's how that word in the Hebrew can be translated, either offspring or seed. See, he's got a land to live in. He's going to have plenty of offspring to occupy and settle it. And then he's going to be able to accomplish that mandate. But there's a problem. What's the problem? Well, there's a whole series of problems. He's got a barren wife. Not only that, he's old, she's old. She can't bear children. He's got no heirs. In other words, there's no descendants. How am I going to have all these innumerable descendants when I don't even have a kid yet? I don't have a son yet. And my wife is incapable of delivering me a son. See, he's got all kinds of issues going on. And he's got this nephew that he's inherited from his dead brother who's traipsing along with him. And he's going to cause some problems and some issues. As a matter of fact, we know from Genesis that at one point they divided because they had too many flocks. And so he allowed Lot to choose which land he wanted to settle in. And the scriptures tell us he chose the best land. He let Lot take the best of the land that had been given to him. So once again, you see Abram doing what's right in his own eyes. He didn't consult God. He didn't ask God. He just gave his nephew choice of land and he chose the very best land, which is going to factor into this whole thing. And then not only that, we're going to find out that there's all kinds of kings already in the land. It's interesting that God says, this is your land. I'm giving it to you. But he doesn't bother to tell them, oh, there's a whole lot of kings already. There's already kings in the land. There's already people who think they have dominion over the land, who think they rule and they reign. Again, not dissimilar to what happens many, many centuries later when the Israelites go into the land and it's full of giants, it's full of fortified towns, and it's full of armies that are more, more, more powerful and plenty of kings who are going to stand against them. See, all of this is going against Abram. And yet God says, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to blow through chapter 14, but I want you to notice something that we don't typically notice. 28 times in this chapter, the word king or kings appears. Look what it says. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Shedelamer, king, king of Elam, or Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, the king of Sodom. So over and over you see king, 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 king. You got all these kings. Where are they living? In the land. What land? The land that God said belongs to the descendants of Abram. It goes on and talks about the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela. All these join forces in the valley and they're going to do battle. So there's already men who think they're king, who think this is their kingdom, who, who are fighting over this domain that actually, God says, belongs to Abram. And it tells us in verse 8, the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, all went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with the king Shedelamar and all these other kings. So you've got five kings against four kings and they're going to do battle 
in this valley and they're going to fight amongst one another. So here's poor Abram looking across this land and it's full of kings with powerful armies and he looks nothing like a king. He's got lots of money. He's got lots of sheep, but he doesn't have much other than that. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't act like a king. And he's surrounded by kings all in the land that supposedly God has given to him. And they go to battle. And as a result of this battle, one side loses and they take as their possession Sodom and Gomorrah. We're not going to get into Sodom and Gomorrah, but they end up being two evil cities that play a, a role later on in the story of Genesis. But this is where Lot had decided to live. He's living in these two evil cities. And he is taken captive along with his wife and children because they've chosen to live in two places where they didn't belong. He chose the best of the land and he ended up living like the people in the land. And he gets taken captive. Lot finds out that his nephew has been taken captive. And so what does he do? When he hears about this, he takes his kinsmen to go and rescue him against five powerful kings. It says he had 300 trained men. That's all he's got. That's his army. And he's going to go to war in order to recapture what has been stolen, what really belongs to him. But he's really going to rescue his nephew Lot. And he does so. He divides his forces against them by night and they defeat them and they pursue them. And he brings back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. He, he redeems what is rightfully his from these powerful kings who already live in the land. And we know why, because a little bit later in the same chapter it says, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Here we see God clearly stated as the one who's accomplishing this incredible event. Through who? Through Abram. Through this man who was a pagan at one time, who's now been chosen by God, who's got a barren wife, who has no son, who has nothing to offer God. He's given him a land. The land is full of other kings. These kings are powerful, and yet God allows him to defeat them. And then once again, God's going to reiterate his promise. When Abram begins to wonder, how are you going to bless me when I don't have a son? Maybe you should choose my servant, Eliezer. Maybe he can be my heir. And God says, no, no, no. And he brings him outside and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. He re reiterates the promise. He goes on in chapter 15, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. He's letting him know there's going to be a detour. There's going to be a time when his people, his descendants are cast out of the land and they end up in Egypt for 400 years. He's talking about the period of the Exodus. And yet it's all part of God's plan. God's got a, a work that he's doing and we don't always understand it, but working behind the scenes, God is doing what only God can do. And then again, in chapter 17, he says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Do you see how many times he says offspring, seed, descendants? I'm going to do something great. And then he says, by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this. And he's talking about when he asked Abram to sacrifice his son Isaac. He finally has a son. God blesses him with a son. And then God almost immediately tells him to take his life. And Abram agrees to do so and almost goes through with it until the angel of God stops him. And this is what God says, because you've been willing and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Do you see how many times God reiterates this promise? Over and over again. Because he knows that Abram needs to hear it over and over again. Because he's going to have doubts. He's going to have fears. And then he's going to reiterate the same promise to Isaac. When Isaac grows up, God shares the same thing to him. Again, I'll be with you. I'll bless you. I'll give your offspring all these lands. I'll establish the same oath I made with your father with you. I'll multiply your offspring. I'll give your offspring all these lands. And through you, your offspring, the nations will be blessed. Then he does the same thing with the son of Isaac to Jacob. He tells him the same thing. He says, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. Reiterates the mandate. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. I will give the land to your offspring after you. So over and over again, through three generations, God keeps telling this promise. And once again, just as he said to Isaac, king shall come from your own body. This is huge. This is why we're going through this process, because we're talking about the kingdom of God. And what does God say to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? King shall come from your own body. Kings. Now, Abraham's just defeated five of them, but they didn't come through him. They came through another line. They came through Noah and his sons. But he's saying, I'm going to raise up a different breed of kings. And I want you to notice that this is looking to the future. This is a promise of the future. And we go all the way to Matthew, the first gospel, chapter one, verse one. And here's what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, when God makes that promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob that kings shall come from your body, he is, he is foretelling, he's foreshadowing something significant that's going to come, Jesus Christ. And if you go through the first chapter of Matthew, you see this incredible genealogy. And it's a genealogy that begins with Abraham and ends with Jesus Christ and smack dab in the middle with David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and a whole list of men shown here in purple. These are the kings of Israel. Not all of them, but a good share of them. From Abraham came these men, King David, King Solomon, and all the ones who were heirs after them. Now we know if you go and read 1 Kings and 2 Kings and the Chronicles, you know that most of these men were not godly kings. They weren't good kings, but they're kings. And they were supposed to rule and reign over the land on behalf of God as his vice regents. Most of them failed at that. But God keeps His promise because the genealogy goes all the way down to Jesus Christ. 
And this is what theologians refer to as the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. Not this, but that Jesus Christ is the answer to something that God had said all the way back into Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, when he cursed Satan, here's what he said to him. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Isn't it interesting that he uses the term offspring, which to us sounds plural, but then he refers to he, singular. What's going on here? God is making a promise all the way back in chapter 3 that Satan, you may think you have won. You may think you've derailed my redemptive plan, but you haven't. Because the day is coming when I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, her seed and your seed. And that seed, he, that seed shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of all these things. Through Eve, through Sarah, through all of these descendants, we go all the way down to Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews tells us this, because God's children are human beings being made in flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as human being could He die, and only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. See, Jesus Christ had to be born a man. He had to be born through the lineage all the way back to Abraham. And in Luke and in Matthew, both Gospels, in those genealogies, while they're slightly different, they all lead back to the same conclusion that ultimately Jesus Christ is the answer. He's the fulfillment. He also became flesh so that He could also become king, just like King David, but the right kind of king, the perfect kind of king. And what we know is from Paul's letter to the Galatians, that word offspring doesn't just mean many seed or many descendants. It does, but he lets us know. He gives us insight into what God was really saying in those multiple times that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob those great things. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings. In other words, it's not plural. It's actually singular. To his seed, referring to many, not to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. See, what Paul is letting you and I know is that all those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob regarding the seed, the one who would bless the nations, he's really talking about Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the King. See, all of this points us to Jesus being the fulfillment of all the promises. He is the offspring of Abraham. He is the blessing to the nations. And He is the one who will one day restore the land of Israel to His people. So that's why we're studying Genesis. That's why we're taking the time to go back and look at these Old Testament passages because it all points to the coming of the King, which is what we're going to cover next week. The King comes. The King arrives. And He declares the kingdom has come. And it's come because the king has come, the true king, the right king, the godly king, the righteous king. He's here. So this week for your discussion questions, the first one is, why do you think it's so important that we know and understand the Old Testament backdrop to Jesus' coming? Why go through this process? Think about all that we've covered. Go back and look at your notes and just think through why is it so important that we get a grasp on these things 
in order to understand the coming of, coming of Jesus. Secondly, what's significant about God choosing Abram? A pagan living in a pagan land, the land that once held Babel, that, that city that raised its fist in anger against God, and he would bless the nations through that man. Why is that significant? What's it got to do with me and what's it got to do with you? The answer is everything, but take some time to talk about it. Finally, go back and read Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 that we just looked at. According to this passage, why was it so important that Jesus come as a human being? Why couldn't he have just shown up on a white horse like he does in the book of Revelation? Why did he have to come as an infant in a manger? Why did he have to grow up as a, as a young boy? Why did he have to grow into a man, spend three years of his life on earth, and then be killed? Why is that important? Take some time either with your group or with your wife, a friend, and talk about these things because they're going to set up where we go next week. Father, I thank you for this time together and I pray that you would take these words and use them in our lives. Help us to understand the significance of the coming of the King and why he's the fulfillment of every promise you ever made. All the way back to chapter 3, that curse upon Satan, the promises you made to Noah, the promises that you made to Abraham, Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, the, the promises that you made to King David that he would have an heir who would sit on the throne forever. All of these things are fulfilled in Christ. Make them come alive to us today. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. See you guys next week.